Hey, you know how computers are designed to make running a business a lot easier? I think that counts for mailing and shipping, too. I don't know why you wouldn't use Stamps.com. You could have 24-hour access to the post office right from your computer. No waiting in line. No hassle. Stamps.com makes mailing and shipping easier. Just use the computer and printer you already have to get official U.S. postage for any letter, any package. Print it. Put it on envelopes. Put it on labels. Put it on plain paper. Hand it to your mail carrier. They'll take it. You're good. It's more powerful than a postage meter. You can avoid those time-consuming trips to the post office. And I personally use Stamps.com. And actually, you could too if you use the promo code BS for this special no-risk trial. It is a $110 bonus offer. and includes a digital scale, up to $55 of free postage. Um, All you have to do is go to Stamps.com, click on the microphone at the top of the homepage, and type in BS. Stamps.com. Check it out. The BS Report is a free-flowing conversation that occasionally touches on mature subjects. The BS Report. The BS Report with Bill Simmons. Welcome to the BS Report. Taping this on a Monday morning here in Southern California. We're doing two today. We're also doing a Bill Don't Lie NBA podcast. So check that one out too if you don't subscribe to it on iTunes. And we have the Grantland Basketball Hour. We have two shows coming up Thursday and Friday, 7 p.m. ESPN each time. We're going to talk a little bit of TV later with Alan Sepinwall, but first, a little hockey with our old friend from the Puck Daddy blog on Yahoo, Greg Wyshynski. How are you? Doing well, sir. Absolutely doing uh, fantastically. It is, of course, playoff time as we all get ready to watch the greatest tournament in all of professional sports. Yeah, and for the first time in a few years, uh, I'm just completely left out. My favorite team got bounced in the last day, thanks to uh, a typically terrible Sabres performance. Needed some help on that one. Um, and, and As well as their own terrible performance down the stretch. But then the Kings, who seemed like the safest season ticket bet uh, in the league, are not in the playoffs. What happened? Oh, boy. Well, on the Kings' side, it is, it is a, a head-scratcher, but at the same time, it's understandable. This is the team... Ever since they won the cup out of the number eight seed uh, back in 2012, you got the sense that this team thought it never really needed to kick into gear until it absolutely had to. So I think that they didn't really get on their horse until a little bit late in the season. And unfortunately for them, the teams that they were chasing, your Winnipegs, your Calgarys, your Minnesotas, uh, were winning at a better clip. But the, the real the real thing that screwed them this year, Bill, is, is the fact that the skills competition – the fickle mistress of uh, professional hockey uh, was not in their favor. Two and eight in the shootout, one and seven in overtime. That's a combined three and fifteen record, the worst in the National Hockey League as far as what they did in extra time this year. So you, you know, you could be a great possession team, you could have star performances, you could have uh, Drew Doughty maybe being one of the best defensemen in the league this year. But if you leave all of those extra points on the table in overtime, you're not making the playoffs. And the Kings didn't. So I have a lot of thoughts on this, obviously. Um, I, this was my fourth year with Kings season tickets. My daughter is a huge Kings fan. My son became a gigantic Kings fan. So I, I went to somewhere between 22 and 25 Kings games this year somehow. They are, first of all, the worst 4-on-4 four four team I've ever seen in my life. I, it's almost like teams should have just uh, played the first three periods just for the tie so they could beat the Kings in overtime. Um, <laughs> but then the shootouts... It wasn't just that they were historically bad at shootouts. They had guys. I mean, every other team has these guys who attack it left to right or right to left, or you know, they have some sort of move or gimmick they're going to do. The Kings just have guys who go straight ahead and shoot wrist shots. I've never seen anything like it. How can anyone be this bad at shootouts? Yeah, and it's weird because it's not as if there is an offensive talent on the roster, and guys like Kopitar and Carter and Williams, right. and players like Gabrick. And players like that that should be able to finish better than they did. Kopitar this year in the shootout was absolutely atrocious for some reason. But yeah. it's a cyclical thing, and, and we never know once teams get in these shootout ruts whether they're going to be able to shake it. On paper, the Kings should be a good shootout team. You know, Jonathan Quick's an all, all-world goalie. They've got offensive talent up front that could put the puck in the net. Um, but as we saw with the Devils last year, like if, if you get in one of these ruts where you cannot seem to win the shootout, it avalanches down the hill, and all of a sudden you're on the outside looking at the playoffs because all these other teams are thriving in overtime and in the shootout. And you can't you can't seem to get it together. But there was, I mean, there was obviously other reasons too. I mean, yes. their record in one goal games was really underwhelming. 
Um, I thought Drew Doughty had a real good line after the, the final game of the season, which is that if you look at their offense, which was a, a 2.64, I think, goals per game, it was all right. It wasn't fantastic. It wasn't disastrous. Um, but he made the point that a lot of those goals were stacked up in games in which they were winning by two, three goals. You know, they were they were blowing out teams, but they couldn't seem to find that goal when they were trailing by a single goal in the third period against some teams. So there's a lot of situations. And, of course, obviously after the season it comes out that things got so weird and so pressure-filled in the locker room that the players actually barricaded Daryl Sutter out of the room uh, after a win in Tampa at some point. So there, there were clearly some other things going on with that team beyond the performance on the ice uh, as well. Well, when you have the best goalie in the league and you have the best defenseman in the league, it's it's kind of a shame when you don't make the playoffs. And they have a young team, too. I mean, I think the Bruins situation was different. The Bruins, it felt like it was just kind of the end of the run in a lot of ways. Um, with the Kings, though, I, I do think you're right. There was a little bit of an on-off switch with them. You could feel it during the games, too, right? Like, they'd come out, they'd always have a good first period, and then the second period would be terrible, and you could kind of feel the energy shift. But... I really, this sounds like a total cop out, but I just think they played a lot of hockey the three years before, right? They made, they won the cup in 2012. 2013 was the, was the lockout strike season, whatever that'll happen, where it was just that shortened season. Then all of a sudden they were playing crazy games. They made the Western finals that year. And then last year was, you know, the most grueling run anyone ever faced to play all the road games they won. They had three game sevens. Um, two double overtime games in the, in, against the Rangers. And I, I don't know. It just, it seemed to me like a tired team, like at the games, it just seemed a tired team. Then on top of it, you have Voinov's gone, Willie Mitchell, um, Pearson gets hurt. I, it just, it was just one of those year from hells, you know? Yeah. The manpower losses were a big thing too. Cause with, with Voinov's situation, now all of a sudden Dowdy's playing, you know, two minutes more a night than he usually does. And like you said, he's got a lot of hockey on his wheel. Uh, over the last three years, you, you have to factor in the Olympics too for these guys. I mean, you know, yeah. a guy like Quick, for example, having the weight of the world on his shoulders, you know, uh, as, as exhausting as anything uh, during that run for the U.S., but uh, such as it was. But yeah, it's, you're right that you, you hit the key, which is that it, it feels like more of an anomaly for Kings than it does for the, the Bruins. I mean, the average age of the Kings is actually right in line with the average age of the Calgary Flames, and the Flames are considered one of the youngest, you know, most up and coming teams in the league. And you look at this Kings roster and you have a lot of guys that are, that are just entering their prime or in their prime and, and a bunch of young guys that are still coming up through the, the lineup. And it's, it's one of these deals where maybe they needed a wake up call, but they need to play a little bit more uh, start to finish than they have in previous seasons. Um, but it's not a case where I think that all of a sudden we have to take a step back and think the dynasty's crumbled for the Kings. They could easily come back next year and win. Well, they might need a new coach, and I do think the coach really burned him, burned them out. And he, he's one of those guys who he he's just all or nothing. He just goes in and yells at them all the time. And and I think after about the three and a half year mark, maybe that gets a little old. There's been some stories over the weekend that they locked him out of the locker room in Tampa Bay, <laughs> which the GM said, "No, no, that's factually inaccurate. It actually happened in February, not January." It's like, oh, so it did happen. Uh, <laughs> I think he, uh, I think he burned them out, and and I do wonder if they're going to change coaches. I don't know if it's a bad idea either. It's a weird idea, and it's a challenging idea because there is no question that that he's the guy who unlocked the, the the keys to that roster. You know, he he figured out what system they needed to play. He figured out where the pieces fit, and they played extraordinarily well under him. And when they made that system work. They were as machine-like and, 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 and unstoppable as we've seen a team be in the postseason in, in many years. And so you wonder, you know, is, is, the, is the payoff worth it to try to change the voice in the locker room and maybe sacrifice the coaching acumen? I don't know. I know I'll miss him. He always kind of looked like a Bill Plimpton animation to me where he's kind of like <laughs> sucking in his own face. Um, right. And I'll, I'll miss that on the bench if well, that, that he needs to go. The one other thing that um that would be a huge part of this, and only people who go to Kings games know this, he he has a son who has special needs, Chris, who is the jumbotron hero at every game, yeah. and and just is just probably the most beloved person in the whole franchise, players included, and uh, you know they, there is a total family atmosphere at those games, and it would be weird to think of the Sutter family just not being there. 
Um, yeah. So I think yeah. that's I, my thing is it does feel like he burned the team out. But at the same time, I think the team was burned out and had a lot of things going against them. And it's probably worth it just to say, you know what? All right, we'll set out the playoffs this year, regroup, get a couple guys back, whatever's going to happen. And then, and then, yeah, as you said, it might have just been an anomaly. Like the shootouts and overtimes were the reason this team didn't make the playoffs. Yeah, and it, and it was interesting to see the reaction from Kings fans once they were eliminated. It was, it was very much that vibe. It was that vibe that, you know what, it's a right to miss. You kind of you kind of uh, hit the reset button a little bit, blow in the cartridge, stick it back in, see how the game plays next year. And then it was also very much, and, I, and as a Devils fan, I, I appreciate this, because after they went on their little run and won the three cups from 95 to 2003, I had this contact tie for several years after that where, you know, a Ranger fan would try to tell me, oh, she lost in the first round, or oh, you didn't make the playoffs, like, you must feel terrible. I'm like, nah. I'm really good. Like I went to three parades in the span of like seven or eight years. I'm, yeah, I'm really good right now. And I, a lot of Kings fans seem to be in that contact high realm where it's like, you know what? We missed out. It sucks. The Ducks are in. That sucks. Um, but we're okay. Like two cups, three, you know, four years. We're we're, we're doing all right for ourselves right now. And, and that's the kind of vibe I got from them after they got eliminated. Yeah, this is not an exaggeration. I think 19 of the 25 greatest moments in the history of the Kings happened from 2012 to 2014. <laughs> this is a team that uh, did not have a lot of great things happening for the franchise over the years. The Bruins, they just had a lot of below-average players. It's, it sounds like a weird thing to just say, like, that was the reason they didn't make it. But, you know... What do you think you need? Like you need like eight or nine really good guys if your hockey team's going to do anything. And then after mm-hmm. that, it's like you need your role players and all that. Like to lose Sagan and to lose um, Boychuk, which I know is a salary cap thing. But man, I mean, as soon as that deal happened, it's like wow, you didn't even get a first round pick. For, I mean, it was like a conditional first round pick. But I just couldn't believe they couldn't even get a first round pick for that guy. Then you see what happens at the trade deadline with just how overpriced everybody is. Um, but it just seemed like they didn't have enough good players. What was your take on what happened to them? I think you need to have a serious talk with the coach, if he's still the coach, and talk about how the talent is, uh, the ice time is distributed in that lineup amongst the talent. Patrice yeah. um, Bergeron had fewer minutes per game than David Krejci, Carl Soderberg, Brad Marchand, Milan Lucic, Louis Erickson, and Riley Smith. That's insane. Like, Patrice Bergeron is maybe a top-five player in this league at any position, and he needs to get as much ice time as you can possibly put on him because your team will be better every time he's on the ice. When you have, as you say, guys like your Chris Kellys, your Daniel Paez, your Gregory Campbells, there's that Bostonian folk hero thing that goes on with these guys, but at the same time, when you look at their underlying numbers, they're drags on possession. They're not good players. And they haven't yeah. been good players with the Bruins for a while. But yet, they're over-relied on by their coach. The real interesting thing about the Bruins, though, is that they're at that crossroads of Bruins hockey versus whatever the next iteration of Bruins hockey is going to be. And you saw that from Chiarelli at the trade deadline. You know, instead of going out and getting another bruising guy or a fizzle guy or a guy that's kind of cut in the, uh, the Bruins mold, uh, a veteran guy, he went younger and, uh, and a little bit more of an offensive upside and, and bring Connolly. And you combine that with the loss of Sean Thornton and some of the other player personnel decisions that they've made, and you wonder whether they're starting to kind of get away from the style of hockey that Claude Julian prefers and into something different, which should make Bruins fans mental, by the way, to think what Tyler Sagan could do in, in that <laughs> system that they'll be playing in maybe the next couple of years. But, uh, but he can't change the past. And I still say that he would have never found his game in Boston under those conditions and in that situation. You know, I talked to Matt Green about this once. Who's he, I ran into him at some point over the last four months. Who's a great guy, by the way. And, uh, great. And we were, ta- we were talking about the Bruins, and I, I was just my dad is so traumatized by the Sagan trade. Like he just he brings it up probably forty percent <laughs> of the conversations we have. And uh, and Green was just matter of fact. He's like, you have to understand, Sagan never would have played this well in Boston. Yeah. He's like, he's like, there's just no way he wouldn't have gotten the. He's a center. He wouldn't have. He, he, he wouldn't have been on that. Um, 
one of the first two lines. They would have had to move him around. He just never would have totally gotten it, and it wasn't going to happen for him until Dallas. Do you agree with that? I totally agree with that. I, I agree with it from the perspective that he was going to be behind Bergeron and Krejci in that lineup, and if anything else, would have had to play on the wing in the top yeah. six, which is out of his natural spot. Um, he wouldn't have played with Jamie Benn, obviously, because Ben's in Dallas, and the chemistry that those two had straight off the bat is the reason why they both blew up offensively. But the most important thing, though, in the Sagan trade that, that makes me agree with the, the mindset that, that Green has and other people have about he would have never put it together in Boston is it's not simply just what wasn't happening in Boston. It, it was what wasn't happening for Tyler Sagan. And he, he needed to be thrown from the train. He needed to be thrown from the train and fall through the tumbleweeds and fall down and find a cowboy hat and put it on and join the Dallas Stars. Like, he needed to have that wake-up call to change his own behavior, to change things in his own life, to refocus his own life uh, and his career. And it was a split that was necessary for him to finally find his game in, in a lot of different ways. Uh, because I agree, I don't, I don't think it would have ever come together for him in the same way it has in Dallas in, in Boston. All right, I've heard this theory, and here's my counter. He was so young when they traded him, and that's what I hated about the trade. It was the same thing I hated about the James Harden trade in, in basketball. Um, first of all, I hate trading young guys because people don't really know who they are until they hit their mid-20s as an athlete, I don't think. Um, but if you're going to trade him, I need a blue chipper back. I hate the, the dollar for three-quarters trade. And yeah. it's like, Harrison's fine. Like he probably had like twenty goals this year. Riley Smith was had got hot for two months last year and, and then kind of settled <laughs> into what he is. Yeah. But I just hate making. I hate trading somebody who has that much talent unless I know I'm getting a monster guy back. And they didn't. And that was my problem with the trade. It felt like a giveaway. Yeah, it's, yeah. A, it's a weird deal in the NHL where you can trade. Like if somebody traded the first overall pick right now after they get it in the lottery this weekend, they would get a Lindros package back. Yeah. Like you can trade potential from the draft, but the minute these guys hit the league and have a couple seasons under their belt, all of a sudden nobody wants to pay for potential. Like anybody could have looked at Sagan and said, okay, you get him out of Boston, you put him in an offensive role, you put him with the right wingers, like he could blossom. Like anybody could have looked at that situation and come to the same conclusion. But yet no one is going to pay for that. They're all going to lowball Boston. They're all going to say, look, this is what this kid's accomplished. We know what the situation is. We're not really sold on him as, a, as an individual yet, so here's, here's what we're paying for you. It's, it's a weird thing how two years in the league, all of a sudden, you go from uh, giving up half your franchise for the potential of a player to no longer the potential of a player being a selling point for a team. You know, I think about this a lot when I'm at these Kings games and they're playing like Edmonton, and I'm watching Nugent Hopkins skate around. I'm like, oh, that guy. He was way up there in the draft one year. And it's like, oh, there's Taylor Hall. And they just seem, they're sadly skating around, getting beaten five to one, you know, in the second period. And, and it is like a lot of it is situation. I think for Sagan, the worst thing that probably happened to him was being on such a high profile team early in his career in such a rabid hockey city where it was like, you know, there was a lot of stories going at, around about him, about him partying all the time and, you know, it's almost like he would have been better off going to, like, the Edmonton situation, just being on a bad team See, and being Sagan. That's a, that's an interesting point because the, the read on the Edmonton situation by a lot of people in, in the NHL is the opposite of the Sagan thing. Like, he won straight away. Like, he experienced victory early. We, you know, that affects him in, in several different ways and, and probably in some negative ways where all of a sudden, you know, reportedly there's, like, chaperones stationed outside of his hotel right. on the road and things like that, right? And then, but the Edmonton situation is a completely different one in the sense that it's negative because these guys never won, and they don't know how to win. And if you, if you look at their numbers as far as like their inability to close out games or inability to, to rally in the third period, it's that sort of mindset, that kind of like slumping shoulders, here we go again thing that these young players have at Edmonton that, uh, that they can't seem to shake. And, and, and it's super frustrating because you, you mentioned Eugene Hopkins, you mentioned... You know, Taylor Hall, Jordan Eberle, Neil Yakupov. You're talking about first overall picks there yeah. um, in, in some cases who are wallowing in this just black hole of hockey in Alberta. And then you think about how they're right in the lottery and they could end up with Connor McDavid, the next Sidney Crosby. And, you know, he joins that mix. And then there's part of you that says, oh, great, we can finally activate all these players and have a winning team at Edmonton. And, 
and you know, batten down the hatches, it's going to be the young guns for the next 10 years, or he's just going to be added to the black hole and get sucked in by the gravity, and we never hear Conor McDavid's name again. Well, it seems like him and Eichel, we're going to be hearing their names. I can't remember this much. It's, I mean, it's always tough to call guys sure things when they're 18, but if you do this sure thing hockey scale and you bring it back to like the days of Bobby Orr in the mid-60s and people like that, it seems like those guys, both of them, are on the short list of, of I would say, at least a 9 out of 10 on the sure thing scale, right? For sure. And, you know, we, we, we see this every five years or so. The real blue chippers come through. The franchise-changing guys come through. The, the sure things. And both of them are sure things. You know, McDavid's getting a lot of Crosby uh, comparisons, and I think that's a fair one in the sense that he's going to be able to jump into a team and make it immediately better with his playmaking abilities. But this draft, I think, will be looked back on in the same way that the Ovechkin-Malkin draft was, for example. Like, you know, it, it, one and two are so great, and maybe one's a little bit better than two at the end of the day, but they're both franchise-changing players. And, and that's why, you know, the NHL got a lot of attention for all the tanking that went on, you know. And in tanking, we all got an education on tanking in the league, by the way, that, that it's not on the players. The players don't tank. They, there's too much pride in, in, a, in a hockey player to actually lay down and try to lose on purpose. But yeah. the meticulous deconstruction of a roster by a guy like Tim Murray, the GM for the, for the Buffalo Sabres, was an absolute joy to watch, where he actually traded his starting goaltender twice in the same season to try to ensure that they were going to hit rock bottom. And they did. And now they're insured at least Jack Eichel from Boston University uh, at number two. But hopefully for them, they win the lottery and grab Connor McDavid at number one, and, and then they have a franchise-building uh, player for the next, you know, 12, 15 years. Well, I'm holding out hope between my, my favorite team and my season ticket team. I have a 4% chance for one of them. It's not bad. <laughs> one in 25. Uh, all right. We got to go through the playoffs. This is really important. First of all, um, I've liked the flames all season. I saw them early on somewhere in the first two months. And it was like, you just know, you don't, you know, I, I hadn't really been following. It was in the football basketball zone. Hadn't really like, been looking at the big picture with hockey went to one of those flame games and was like wow this team's fast what's going on here is this team just having a good game or is there something happening and then i think they beat the kings four out of five times they just kind of had their number at some point really started to like them as a playoff sleeper now in round one they're playing uh one of my least favorite teams in any sport the canucks and uh and they're plus 130 underdogs the Flames. So have we just reached a point now where, where Vegas just says, you know what? Nobody has home ice advantage. We're just basically everybody's dead even except for like we're going to give the favorites a tiny bit of an edge, but that's it. Is that what happened here? In this case, yeah. I mean, they're extraordinarily well matched. Um, you know, there, there is a bit of a veteran versus up-and-comer vibe with the Canucks, with the Sedins, and with the players in the blue line, Alex Edler and players like that that give them a bit more of a veteran look. Um, in key positions than Calgary has. Uh, but Calgary has the kids, and they've got the energy. And, and I agree with you, man. I, I've seen them a few times, too, in person this year, and, and I think their speed is something something to really behold. And there's just something a little bit magical about the way that they were able to continue pressing forward and continue winning in the face of teams trying to catch them at the end of the season. I think they really showed you something, and, and, and you're always looking for that kind of character thing. But Vancouver, too, to, to be honest, I mean, was able to maintain their spot in the in the Pacific for most of that ride too, but I'm yeah, with but we you. know, we know what Vancouver is going to do. What are they going to do? Well, they're going to choke. That's what Vancouver always <laughs> does. What are you talking about? That's I'm why they're plus six. They're, that's why they're sixteen to one to win the cup because they're Vancouver. This is what they do. You know it too. There's a Vancouver. lot of choke in that division, though, man. That's the problem. That's the problem. We're trying to figure that out. I agree with you, by the way. I think I think Calgary wins that series in six, and you get the Ducks and Winnipeg over in the other series and. I mean, I am I am stunned how many people are fairly confident that Anaheim's going to lose that series to Winnipeg. I'm I'm not one of them. I think Anaheim wins that series, um, but I, I I I'm surprised how many people think that's a sure thing upset too. I like I liked uh, Winnipeg in that series, but thought the odds were ridiculous. Winnipeg has the worst odds of anyone to win the Stanley Cup. They're thirty to one. Um, I like that Winnipeg team, but I, I'm with you. I, as much as I detest Anaheim. As you said, I, I, one of your pieces you wrote recently, you called it the uh, 
the trinity of, of hate with Kessler and Getzlaff and Perry. Yeah. Uh, oh boy, that I oh, it's between the Ducks and the Canucks. I'm just going to be sports hate watching the entire uh, the entire first round. But uh, I think the Ducks are are they're at least good enough to get out of round one. They just have a lot of talent. I, I'd be surprised if they lost to Winnipeg. It, it really wouldn't surprise me if they lose all three games in Winnipeg because that is going to be an absolute madhouse. Those fans, if, if, you're, if you're not familiar with the Winnipeg fans, they are basically the most vocal, rabid, sarcastic, snarky NCAA men's basketball fans transferred to hockey. Like, you will hear chants, you will hear songs, you will hear ravenous cheering uh, for that team. It's probably the best home ice advantage in the league right now, and the idea that they've been waiting since 1996 to get another chance to cheer for a playoff team in Winnipeg and now get one. I, I, I would not be shocked to see the home team hold serve throughout that entire series, which obviously means the Ducks advance, but Winnipeg will give them a real scare. One thing I would, first of all, I agree with you that Winnipeg crowd is incredible, but one thing I would point out, and this happens in basketball too, when you have that crowd that's just so fired up and it almost means too much and you have that playoff game where it's like game four, they're trying to tie it, uh, try tie the series at two, and the crowd is just off the charts insane, and it's like a 1-1 game third period, and then the other team scores the fluke goal, and it's like you put a pin in the arena. Everybody gets deer in the headlights for like five minutes. So it's almost like when it means too much, that can almost be a bad thing sometimes for the home crowds. But I uh, So Winnipeg... Winnipeg's plus 150 in that series. What I was going to do, I, I'm going to bet on the Flames and the Jets just because I hate the Ducks. Uh, I'm betting on the Islanders. I'm just It's more of a bet against Capitals history. I feel, like, <laughs> I feel like I'm in a good spot there. Like just, I'm betting against the years and years and years of, of first-round chokes. I feel like I'm, I'm in good hands there, right? Ooh, that's a tough one. That's, that's a real toss-up for me because, well, first of all, keep in mind that the last seven – uh, seven of the last nine Capitals playoff series have gone seven games. Now, most of them have been against the Rangers, uh, but, but that's something to keep in mind as far as how long this thing might go. Uh, I have the Caps winning in seven. Uh, I think the Islanders close out Nassau with a win in game six, uh, mm. but then lose it down in D.C. in game seven. The, the Capitals are playing a brand of hockey that you've wanted to see from them for years. Really good, strong balance, great uh, five-on-five play, Ovechkin playing within himself and playing in both ends of the ice. Their goalie, Braden Holtby, has been maybe top five in the league this year. And, and you know, Barry Trotz getting a chance to play in a playground that has better toys than he ever had in, in Nashville for the most part, and it's it's been fun to watch. So as much as the Islanders are a great story, I think their goaltending has been kind of on the wane towards the end of the season. The yeah. Capitals know how to beat Halak, and I, I think they might put out the Islanders themselves. Yeah, I was. I, the Islanders are going to be my Stanley Cup bandwagon jump, and uh, one of one of my friends who roots for them was like, eh, "Our goalie." Uh. <laughs> and, well, I've uh, said for I've said for years though, like you know, when Chicago grabbed Taves and Kane and became good, and everybody within a you know three hundred mile radius became a Blackhawks fan again. I think the Islanders are the next bandwagon team. There's so much love for that team. Yeah, um, and the nostalgia of it, and the and the, the, the Cup dynasty, and Trottier and Bossy, and all that stuff. Plus, now you're going to have the Brooklyn Hipster thing next year kicking in. Uh, I think the the Islanders are going to be the next great sort of Blackhawks bandwagon team because they could go on a real nice run with the amount of young talent that they have on that roster. Uh, I just don't see it starting this year. Well, and the other thing to remember with them is it wasn't the Islanders fans' fault that uh, faults that. Uh that the team went in the tank like that. I mean, that was one of the worst-owned teams in any sport. And it was a little like like what happened when I got soured on the Bruins for, you know, 12, 13 years. It's like when your owner sucks, it's just really hard after a while to to pony up the proper enthusiasm for the team. Hey, wait, because we have to go soon. Um, Your candidate for the hot goalie this year. And you can say totally say the Hamburglar, Hamburglar if you want in Ottawa. <laughs> the hot goalie that could go on a run this year. That's a good I, – I'm going to go with – I'll give you one from each conference. Um, this is Ben Bishop's first big go-around as a starting goalie for the Lightning in the playoffs. He was injured last year. I really like him. I think he could go on a run. 
if he falters, they have a kid, Russian kid named Vasilevsky who could come in, and he could be the guy that runs. I've, either way, I'm, I'm really high on the Lightning in the East uh, based on, on both their goalies. And in the West, I'll, I think if, if the, the St. Louis Blues, you talk about chokers, by the way, mm. if the St. Louis Blues do what I think they're going to do this year, they're going to need a kid named Jake Allen take over the, jet, the starting job and never give it back to Brian Elliott and to go on a Cam Ward circa 2006 run uh, and backstop his team to the Cup. And I think he can. I think he's got the ability to do it and get locked in. But he would be the guy who, if you're looking for someone to come out of nowhere and put together a role, it would be a, a guy like Jake Allen with the, uh, with the St. Louis Blues. All right, so you make your Stanley Cup pick, and I'm going to make mine. All right, so my pick before the season was the St. Louis Blues, and I'll, I'll roll with that. I decided not to pick the Sharks for the first time in many years because I decided to spread some love to the other perennial playoff disappointment in the Western Conference. So I'm going to pick the Blues. They're going to have to get through Chicago to get there, but they won't have to get through L.A., which is their benefit. So I like the Blues to get out of the West. I like Tampa Bay to get out of the East. I don't ah, there's a part of me that thinks the Rangers might get gobbled up in their own division by the Penguins and Capitals, but I like the Lightning's path out of that division. Lightning Blues in the final. St. Louis hoists the cup for the first time. That's not happening. <laughs> uh, I'll on. have you know, sir, that I'm an expert. So that's of ridiculous. The Blues aren't winning. The Blues and the Canucks are going to be sticking their fingers down each other's throats. Uh, I can't. I can't wait for the Canucks to fall apart. It's. I'm going to enjoy that more than anything else that's going to happen in this hockey playoffs. And the Canuck fans take it so personally. Why can't I just root against your team? Why does that make? Why does it make them so unhappy? Why? Hey, listen. I, I know. I know. I know. You've got no love for the Sedins necessarily, right? Right. But if they went into the Hall of Fame, don't you think they should go in on the same plaque? Don't you think they should be one? Oh, entry? that's interesting. Maybe a double plaque. Look. Yeah. I. Right? I respect the hell out of the Sedins. And, like, when they had uh, I just their talent, like that Kings game, when it was the, basically the biggest game of the Kings season, the Sedins scored one of those ESP goals where one guy drives to the net and just magically oh, yeah. knows the other guy's 20 feet behind him. Oh, yeah. Um, I If it's okay with, 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 uh, with everyone in Canada, I just like rooting against the Sedins in Vancouver. I'm sorry. <laughs> It's my it's my right it's my right as a human being to pick teams that I like rooting against and that's well, one it, of the it, teams. It's, it's not so much like needing to apologize to the people of Canada because I think most of the people in Canada see Vancouver as a suburb of Seattle. It's yeah. just it's apologizing to the people of Vancouver, really. Well, I like the city, but look, I also like like I have real real animosity to them from 2011. Like the Aaron Rome hit basically ended Nathan Horton's career, even though that didn't happen for two more years. But that was one of the all time cheap shot hits ever against any Boston athlete. And I, and I'm still mad about it. So I'm sorry. I'm not going to apologize. Here's my uh, Stanley cup pick. You you stole a little bit of my thunder. No pun intended with the lightning. Uh, The lightning are really impressive. I saw them in person this year and, uh, and they're just excellent, and they know what they're doing. And Stamkos is great; he's really great. Uh, I like them in the in in the one conference, and then the other conference. Uh, I want to pick Calgary, but I can't. I, I think they're going to have a memorable one. I don't. I don't think they can win three rounds, but I think I think they could get to the Western Finals potentially. I'm going to go with an old standby, the Blackhawks, because they're yeah. going to get Kane back at some point. And they were another one of the best teams I saw this year. I thought they, they're just really, really, really good at hockey. And they have a lot of good hockey players. And they know what they're doing. And I'm going to I'm gonna bet on the infrastructure with them. They, uh, they, they get him back in practice. He's, he's, playing, he's, he's you know, wearing a contact jersey. He looks like he'll get back for the first round. And, and the other thing, too, about the Blackhawks, one of my things, Bill, is I'm always looking for, for from a championship team, what is the narrative on the, on the commemorative Blu-ray? Like, what's the story that you're going to sell me on with this championship right. team? Because usually the championship teams have the, the, the Blu-ray, you know, narrative itself. Yeah. And I think with the Blackhawks, this is their last hurrah. I mean, Patrick Sharp probably not there next year. This could be the last time they go forth with this complete core. Um, and uh, and it could be the last ride for, for this group, and, and it'd be a great way to close it out. Well, I'm picking the Lightnings over the Blackhawks because – I can't stand the Blackhawks, and I don't want them to win the <laughs> uh, But 
I think that I like Lightning Blackhawks with the Flames as like the Robo sleeper. Uh, we didn't talk about Johnny Goodrow, by the way. One of my favorites. Johnny Hockey. Yeah. He's just great in person. I mean, there's there's like probably I don't know what the list is. Maybe eleven, twelve, thirteen guys who are just great in person. He's on the list. Mm-hmm. Really enjoy. He's it. on the list. Not, not only that, but he's really good at hockey, despite being uh, about the same dimensions as the skinny guy from Nintendo Ice Hockey. And then the other thing too is that he he wanted to light his stick on fire during the NHL All Star Game Skills Competition. They wouldn't let him, but he wanted to. And and I think that that alone should warrant him Rookie of the Year. That that moxie should be rewarded somehow. All right, you can. Uh, I agree with you 100. percent I'm in on the Flames. Good luck, Calgary. Uh, worst of luck to Vancouver and, and Anaheim and the Blackhawks, and especially all of you in Montreal. Worst of luck. Uh, we can read the Puck Daddy blog on yahoo.com. As always, a pleasure to talk to you soon. Best of luck to you in the lottery, sir. Thank you. All right, as promised, uh, one of our oldest BS report, not an age, but just how many how many years he's been coming on from hitfix.com, Alan Sepinwell. How are you? I'm, I'm doing good, Phil. It's been a while. The uh, the Sunday nights are back. It's insane. I, I would argue that last night was, and I didn't even finish it last night. It was such a good night. Madman, Game of Thrones, and then my favorite comedy of the, of the last uh, year or so, Last Man on Earth, which I, is on my DVR. I've not watched it. Um, is this? Do you worry that this is the last great Sunday night run we're ever going to have? No, I, I really don't think so because you know, yeah, Mad Men's ending and Breaking Bad's over and all of that, but there's just so many things. I mean, it's I, what I'm dealing with a lot of my profession right now is this high class problem. There's too much to watch, and I look at the DVR from last night, and there was Mad Men, and there was Game of Thrones, and Veep, and Silicon Valley, and just a million different things, and half of them even I don't have time to get to, and this is my only job. So I, I feel like as more and more people come into the business, there's just going to keep being shows like this. Don't you feel like, though, that there's a lot of competent, like to, to use like a, a pitching analogy, there's a lot of 15-game winners now, but I'm not sure there's a lot of aces. Uh, see, I don't know that I would agree. I'm, I, you know, we're only in April right now, and I'm already looking ahead to what you know my top ten for the year is going to be, and I'm I'm afraid to even think about what's coming next because I've got about fifteen or twenty things that I'm going to want in my top five. It's, you know, for me at least, there there's a whole lot to love. All right, give me some. Okay. So you've, you've got The Americans, which is fantastic. You've got Justified, which is wrapping up its its run tomorrow night. That has had a great bounce-back season. You've, you've still got Mad Men. You've got Game of Thrones. You've got the other HBO Sunday shows. You have uh, Last Week Tonight with, with John Oliver, which is also on HBO on Sundays. There is uh, – I'm, I'm just trying to think here. It's all blending together. You che- you're cheating with John Oliver. That doesn't count. That's not, it's a, that's it's not a, a show. fictional show. Um, let's see there. I mean, there was Banshee on Cinemax, which is fantastic and the best action show of like the last 10 years or so. Broad City just wrapped up. That's great. Better Call Saul had a really good year. The Jinx. I mean, come on. And this is just in the first quarter of the year. The Jinx. That was, that was a three-episode show that they dragged six episodes out of. Come on. That show needed an editor. They, I liked 100 it. And... they structured it so they all had good cliffhangers and the episodes weren't too long. I thought it worked. Okay, I thought it was it was three hundred minutes that could have been one hundred fifty. It's like, hey, here's another twenty minutes on the handwriting analysis. All right, move it along. <laughs> Where are we going? It was a great ending, though. Even though it was, it was almost definitely rigged. It's like, there, oh, he's, he's going to confess in the bathroom, huh? There's some sketchy you, things there, absolutely. Okay, um, Matt, let's go with Mad Men first. I want to talk about Mad Men and Game of Thrones, and then you have to go. Not not because I want you to go, because you have something to do. Uh, Mad Men, I, this whole thing with the splitting up the last season, it, it really hurts me as a viewer from a momentum standpoint, just because I can't remember what I did a week ago. And I'm supposed to remember the 27 intricate plot characteristics, all the stuff going on in a show that I haven't seen in a year that's really only had seven episodes in the last two years. Um can we stop this? How do we stop this whole splitting up thing? Well, I would hope the fact that the ratings have not 
gone up significantly the way AMC hoped they had could help stop this. I doubt it's going to in the same way that you're going to keep getting like two-part movie sequels to the ends of franchises. It's just it's a way to, to spread out the money and make more. But it does Mad Men no favors because, you know, every Mad Men season starts slow. But you've got 13 episodes to build up. Here they're doing seven and seven. And so last year didn't start out great either, and it got really fantastic by the end. But then we've got to start over from scratch with these. I don't like it. I didn't like it when the Sopranos did it either. I can't ever remember thinking, you know, it was a good idea to split up the split up a crucial season of a TV show. Breaking I will Bad say that well. Yeah, you're right. But you know, I, I really feel like part of that with Breaking Bad was that so many people caught up on it on Netflix and iTunes and whatever the hell they were watching. That I mean, remember how how big the ratings were for those last six? Yes, because everyone had caught fun. up and wanted to watch live. Right, but but like I watched those last six, and I had just seen the whole whole show basically within the last eighteen months. So it was like I was like dead on on the ball with it. Yeah, and uh, I I don't know. I mean, it might have been anomaly. I mean, it was like the best. That was the best uh, stretch run I think a show's had. Yeah, where, and where also just I mean that that's a very one, right? plot driven show, so you can do a big cliffhanger like Hank finding the the inscription in the book. There's nothing Mad Men can do that's comparable. So having people wait a year in between episodes accomplishes nothing. So, your thoughts through two episodes of the second final season of the final season of Mad Men? Uh, I thought the first episode was good, not great, because it's a Mad Men premiere and they're almost never great. Uh, last night's episode I didn't really like because I've never liked Megan nearly as much as the show likes Megan, and there was a lot of Megan in that one. A lot of Megan. I actually liked it. I liked Julia Ormond. The Julia Ormond Roger Sterling uh, combo is one of my favorites. I was so excited that she called him. And, uh, oh, I guess I'm going to have to do spoiler alerts here since I just spoiled some of it. Uh, so we'll go spoiler alerts, uh, spoiler alerts the rest of the way here with Mad Men and Game of Thrones. Um, but I, I like, like, I like what Molly Lambert wrote about, uh, Don Draper and Grayland today. It's always fun when Don Draper, he just gravitates to the, to the damaged woman. He just let, he just, it's catnip for him. As soon as she sat on, on, uh, on his kid's bed and just was looking sad and it brought her back to the daughter she did. Don Draper was in at that point. He loves it. Yeah, no, he he definitely repeats some patterns, and I know that that's been something people complained about. It usually doesn't bother me. I think maybe if, like, there, there's six episodes to go when you started off that episode, and you're spending so much of it with Megan and her mom and her weepy sister. I just It's like a bad use of resources this close to the finish line. There's so many other things I think I would have rather seen. You sound like, uh, like me complaining about Scott Brooks playing Enos Cantor too much last night or something. <laughs> Future uh, Nick's free agent Enos Cantor. That'll be exciting. <laughs> That's true. He's going to look great in the triangle. Oh, uh, Draper. Is it, who is John Hamm's? Who's his uh, best actor? Not competition going to be this year. Uh, I'm, tr- I'm trying to think. Of, you know, uh, True Detective isn't going to qualify because that's going to debut in the summer, so he won't have to deal with Colin Farrell or Vince Vaughn or, or whoever winds up being the breakout from there. I mean, this could be a shot, or this just could be the, they give it to Kevin Spacey, even though I don't think House of Cards is very good. But he's Kevin Spacey, and he's in the movies. So, hmm. so it sounds like I don't want to say you're lukewarm on Mad Men, but you're you're hoping that we have a great episode coming. And, and I'm assuming that we have a great episode coming because I felt about this way at this time last year. I think the, the first couple episodes last year were better than this. But even so, it's like it, it takes a while to build. And, you know, the last couple of episodes of last year were two of the best episodes the show's ever done. So I'm optimistic. I just didn't love this last one. Any uh, Any predictions? I don't know. I know that, that the last couple episodes are going to be long. That's, that's what Matt Weiner told me. But beyond that, it's, I kept wondering if he was going to jump further into the 70s. He doesn't seem to be doing that. This was only about a month after the last one. So we could still end you know, pretty close into the decade. Game of Thrones. Um, Khaleesi's losing control of the dragons, I'm concerned. She's losing control of everything. She, she's one of those conquerors. She's like, okay, I'll go in there. I'll take over. Everyone will love me. I won't have to worry about anything. And she didn't think any of it through, and it's just a complete fiasco. Are you talking about James Dolan or Khaleesi? Either one. You know, we, we could see an episode coming up where, where Daenerys plays the harmonica. I don't know. <laughs> she introduces her blues band. 
in lieu, yeah, of, in she, lieu of the fighting pits. And because we want her to go back to King's Landing, instead she's wasting time with the blues band instead of fixing the basketball team. Yes. It does seem like we're we're headed toward uh, Tyrion and Khaleesi being in the same scene together. Which yeah, is which exciting. I'm excited about. That's, you know, the when Varys said in the premiere, like, we're going to go see her, that got my blood pumping because the, this is a show where too many characters are too far apart from one another, and it seems like they're they're starting to bring a lot of them together, which is badly needed. Can you remember another show killing off more essential characters than this show? Is this Have they now broken the record? Probably just because I don't know that there is a central character. Like, Sopranos whacked a lot of people, but Tony made it at least to the last episode, and depending on how you feel about that last scene, you know, Walter White makes it to the end of Breaking Bad, whereas, you know, Ned Stark is the main character of the first season, probably, and they killed him, and I don't know that there's been one since. There's, you know, most of the Lannisters are still alive, and some others are, but they've whacked a lot. It's the first show, it's the first great show I can remember watching that I feel like everyone's in play in every episode. You just never know. You never know when somebody's time's going to be up. Yeah, unless you know some some of these people who who lo- have read the books and love to spoil things for everybody start tweeting at you who who is going to die and when. But yeah, there's a lot of uncertainty. I hate those people, and that's just one of many reasons why I don't read my Twitter replies. Uh, <laughs> Very smart. Where do you think Game of Thrones? What is this? Season six? Season five. Season five. Where do you think this goes? What's what? What do you think are the the two big things that happen this season? Um, well, obviously, Tyrion is going to have to, I mean, it's even in the poster art for the season, Tyrion is going to make it to, to Daenerys, and he's going to get a look at the dragons, and that I'm excited about, and the other thing seems to be that, that Stannis and John, is trying to convince Jon Snow to, to help him form an army to go and, and take back the North and everything, and I don't like either of those characters that much on their own, but together they've been kind of interesting, so I'm, I'm looking forward to both those things. Again, any time that, like, the action compresses rather than expanding, it's it's good for Game of Thrones. Deep down, do you miss King Joffrey? I do. That was a really good character. There's some, like, awful characters on TV and on this show that I don't want to see again. Like, the 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 bastard son who likes flaying people alive and is torturing Theon. If, if we never see him again, it'll be too soon. But the kid who played Joffrey was so good that that was definitely, like, he, he probably needed to go for the plot, but I miss him. Yeah, I, I was, the Theon thing, I just don't, I don't know why they had to do that. That that was my one real Game of Thrones regret. <laughs> All the horrible things everyone did to one another. That was the only one where I was like, "Hey, come on, come on, guys!" And it wasn't just that they did it; that they took an entire season building up to it. It's just a whole year of Theon being tortured. Like every every episode or every episode and a half, it's like, "Okay, we'll go back here. He's being yeah. whipped again. Something awful's happening. Enjoy." Yeah. Um, last Last Man on Earth. Uh, where do you rank it? I really liked the first few episodes. I thought they were fantastic. When it was just him alone or even him with Kristen Schaal, I thought it was really good. Since they started bringing in January Jones and everybody else, I'm I'm having a hard time with it. It feels like they're just hitting the same note over and over again, which is just he's really, like, frustrated that he can't have sex with Betty Draper, and that's the whole show, and he's just being a a dick about it. And it seemed like last night's episode, you know, without spoiling, is going to start moving in a different direction, and, and I hope so. I wish that the first episode where he's just like kind of losing his mind slowly as he's the last man on earth that to me they they could have gotten 3 episodes out of that just him grocery shopping and just knocking things over in the grocery store I would have enjoyed that for an episode. Yeah, no, I think they could have done at least a half a season of that. They could have done at least a half a season where it was just him and Carol. But I, I don't know if it was they wanted to rush or if Fox said like no, you have to make this more like a conventional show. Uh, but for whatever reason, I, I just the first couple episodes were fantastic, which makes me even more sort of baffled that they decided, all right, this is what we want to do now. I still like it. I've so really it has moments. It. There, there's a thing. There's a bit with the cow last night that made me laugh a lot. So I'm, I'm not ready to give up on it. I'm just frustrated at the moment. If you were the last man on earth, where would you live? Because I would not live in Tucson. I would not live on Tucson, but then I wouldn't have to be worrying about like production tax credits when I was choosing where to live. Oh. That's a really interesting. I'm, I'm assuming think about that they're that. doing it because the Southwest is like cheaper to film in. See, I would, I, I don't know how you don't go to the beach at that point. Like you, you, you're the last man on earth. I want to live near the water. Yep. I want to be in like Orange County or Manhattan Beach or Malibu or San Diego. I'm somewhere on the beach. I can, t- I can promise you that if I'm the last man on earth, I'm going to the beach. Yeah, and he, and as the last man on earth, he wouldn't have to worry about water restrictions. Right. 
and just you just you're there and and it's like I would also assume if I wanted to see other people, I'm not going to see them in Tucson. They're probably going to go to where one of the oceans are. Yes. I've thought about this way too much. Uh, It's not the best climate to be the last man on earth then. Do I bang out the bloodline on Netflix because Coach Taylor's in it or no? Uh, I can't. I only watched the first three. Didn't love them. You know, I heard from some people it got better, but not necessarily great. And again, there's just there's too many. There's too many A and A minus shows for me to watch a show that could maybe max out at a B or B plus if I wasn't feeling it to begin with. So the show that I'm not watching that that infuriates you and makes you the angriest is The Americans. Yeah, The Americans is fantastic. And you hold it against me that I'm not watching that. I don't hold it against you, but it's, it's not like like The Leftovers was a show I loved last year, but I get why people don't watch it. The Americans just kind of bums me out, and I know some people say they don't want to root for the Soviets, and, and I get that. But I just it's so good, and Carrie Russell and Matthew Reese are so great in it, and especially once they got to that second season, it just it found another gear, and it took the leap. So I, I wish more people were watching it, but FX, it sounds like they're going to stick with it. Greenwald hold it, holds it against me, like legitimately. Like he look, he looks down on me, thinks lesser of me. And he's uh, a sensitive guy. I understand. Last question: True Detective. They showed a trailer yesterday, which may have been online, but I, it was the first time I'd seen it. Um, Vince Vaughn, Colin Farrell. It looked like Rachel McAdams. Yeah, and um, uh, Tim Riggins. Tim Riggins, who, you know, everybody wrote off Tim Riggins. I never wrote him off. And and I've been with him. He had a little comeback with Lone Survivor. I'm with Tim Riggins all the way. Uh, should should we be nervous, excited, keep my guard up for True Detective season two? How should I be feeling? I, you know, it's been this weird roller coaster because no one was paying any attention at all to the first season of the show before it debuted. So it just got to appear as if by magic, and it was exciting. And this season, every single aspect of it has been picked over on top of all the people talking about the end of last season. So it's going to be almost impossible for it to live up to the hype. But i got to say, that trailer looked really good, and it seems like, you know, again, you, you can only tell so much from a trailer, like these are good uses of Vince Vaughn and Colin Farrell. Mm. You don't get to hear that often, that sentence too often. All right, you have to go. Alan yeah, I got, I got another call. Thanks, Bill. We'll check you on hitfooks.com. Thank you. All right, bye. That's it for the uh, – BS report for Monday, but you can hear Bill Don't Lie, the NBA podcast on iTunes if you want to hear me talk basketball with uh, Chris Ryan and and Andrew Sharp from the Triangle at Grantland. We're going to come up with the Triangle All-Stars for 2014-15 NBA season and a little bit of a playoff preview. So if you like basketball, listen to that. And again, Grantland Basketball, ESPN, 7 p.m. Thursday night. And then again, a second show. Friday night, 7 p.m., two playoff previews, two different themed playoff previews. We are very excited for both. Talk to you later in the week on the BS Report. Thank you for downloading the BS Report with Bill Simmons. Too much fun. Check out more podcasts at the iTunes Music Store or at Podcenter at ESPNRadio.com. Peace out.